when theologians and biblical scholars look at the Word of God to establish various categories that can be used to think about the church and to speak about the church and to articulate its nature, they use um, several different terms. For example, uh, we call the church visible because of its external organization, its government, its offices, its worship and its membership. We call the church invisible, which means nothing really more than the fact that within the visible church lay concealed all those who are truly and sincerely uh, members of the body of Christ, who have been redeemed by Christ and who bear faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been regenerated by the Spirit of Christ. Then we would speak of the church universal, which would be uh, all of the people of God throughout the whole of the earth who confess the true faith and their families. And it's important to add, and their families, because we're covenantal. According to the Word of God, God covenants with families. Where there is faith residing in the breast of the head of house or one of the believing uh, one of the parents is believing, the whole family is considered to be a part of the church and of the covenant. So we would also say there's such a thing as the universal church, and then we would say there's such a thing as the particular church, such as we are here this morning, gathered here, though we are a part of a broader denomination of the Presbytery, we are a particular organized local congregation under particular pastors and elders with our own officers and membership. We can add to those categories. We've seen visible, invisible, universal, and particular. Now I add one more that may not be known about as much among us, and that is the category of the church militant. The church militant. And we use the word church militant. We need to make a distinction between the church militant and the church triumphant. And the church triumphant is the church which is in heaven now with Christ. It is the, the souls of just men made perfect. It is that, um, that throng of, of holy and heavenly worshipers who've traded in the spear for the, for the palm. And, and they sit there in the heavenly of heavenlies and they worship God and they praise His name and they seek the well-being and the blessing of the church here on earth. But alongside of that, there is what we call the church militant. And here's how the Helvetic Confession defines it. It says it wages war on earth and it fights against the flesh, the world, and the prince of this world, the devil, against sin and death. And so here, in, in, in a sense, is the essence of the church militant. It is the church of believers here on earth who confess Christ unto salvation and the truth about him, and they wage war against everything that stands in opposition to the Lord Jesus Christ. Heinrich Bullinger, the great 16th century preacher and reformer in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, says that the church militant is continually fighting under the banner of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it again. The church militant is continually fighting under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the church militant. And we see that the church militant is in battle, not called to battle. You see, it's not just a description of the church to call it the church militant. It is actually a call to do because it describes what is happening. As people are in the Lord Jesus Christ, they're called to be soldiers of Christ. And the reason for it is very obvious. That is the context of where the church is in this age, which is a fallen age, which is under the influence and the sway of the God of this age, as Paul says in Corinthians 4.4, that's Satan. And he hates the church, and he hates God, and he hates everything that displays the glory of God, which means he also hates you. And that means then that every blood-bought believer is in this militant church and is part of the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because whether we know it or not or perceive it or not, we are under constantly the unwithering assault 
of Satan because he hates us since we're in Christ. That's the church militant. It continually wages war, I think we could say, against the kingdom of darkness. Now, there is perhaps no more vivid illustration and picture of what it means to be the church militant, I think, than Nehemiah 4. Because here the church is in the midst of rebuilding the ruined walls of Jerusalem, which we have said time and again is about a spiritual matter, not a mere material or architectural matter. It's a spiritual one. Because those walls symbolize the identity of the people of God. Those walls separated the people of God from the hostile paganism of, those, of that culture. Those walls were a divinely appointed providential means to separate this tribe of Judah from the rest of the world around it in order that it may be unto the propagation of the gospel because after all, Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, was to come through Judah. And if Judah became corrupted and dissolved into the nations, then the gospel could not be. But then we saw last time as we looked at Nehemiah chapter 3, part of the fuel and, and the great motive of the people of God is as they rose up with their trowel and shovel to go build the wall, was not just those other spiritual matters that we were thinking about, but ultimately, we said, viewing the project through the lens of Psalm 48, we can say that the rebuilding of this walls was about the restoring of the glory of God on earth. Because the psalmist so eloquently, poetically, and beautifully said, that the walls of Zion reflect the glory of God. So we said, as we examine the rebuilding project from chapter 3 through chapter 6, we're entitling this a mini-sermon series, Restoring Glory, because that's what this is all about. Restoring glory. Those walls were the visible tokens of the glory of God on earth. But then we said... As we think about the broader theme of restoring glory, that's what's going on in our text. That's what's going on with the rebuilding of the wall. That each of these chapters presents the project of rebuilding and this restoring of the glory of God from a different angle. So last time as we looked at chapter 3, we noted the unity of the people of God as they galvanized together to do the project. And we said it's something of, a gal of, a, of an idealized picture. Because it shows 41 different construction crews in 41 different places along the wall in the city of Jerusalem, all gathered together with a unity of mind and purpose as they went about the process of rebuilding those walls. And it presents the entire process, a picture, if you will, of the whole project, sort of a snapshot of it as something that had been done and was completed and all without any opposition whatsoever. And then today, we come into chapter 4. And what we find is, as we move past the idealized picture now and descend into the depths of the details about the building project, first of all, is that it was fraught with peril. Next time we're going to see it's fraught with sin, but today we see it was fraught with peril as the enemies of God sought to rise up against the rebuilders and destroy what they were doing. And as a response to that, you can see here that Nehemiah, the governor and the leader of the people of God, rallied them to what? To militancy. To militancy. The great symbol of this text has long been the sword and the trowel. Because that's exactly how the people of God went about this work. With the sword in one hand and the trowel in the other. Building the kingdom of God under the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what I think about this morning. Uh, the church militant. The church militant. And what this text means for us. And we're going to break it down into three parts. Imprecatory prayer, martial preparation, and relentless action. And so, first of all, we think about imprecatory prayer as a means of being the church militant. It takes just a moment to get there. And we need to think, first of all, of the opposition. The opposition of the enemies, the opponents. And 
We see them at the outset of our text here in verses 1 and 2 and 3 with Sinbalat and Tobiah. Now, we've read about these people before. You'll remember that if you can think back with me to chapter 2, one of the things that was so interesting in the telling of the narrative of chapter 2 is the juxtaposition uh, of Nehemiah's record of, re- of not revival, but arrival in Jerusalem. And right up next against it was Nehemiah's testimony to these enemies, Sanballat and Tobiah, who the text says when they heard that Nehemiah had come to seek the good of Jerusalem, that it was displeasing to them. In other words, in the very breath that we have this record, if you will, something of a triumphal entry of Nehemiah into Jerusalem as he is surrounded by the banners of the king of Persia, as he announces his arrival of the new governor of Judah for the purpose of rebuilding the walls. In the very moment we receive that testimony, we see what? We see the kingdom of darkness rearing its ugly head, which anticipates the opposition which is before us here. And in the very end of that text in chapter 2, we read as Nehemiah responds to the taunts and the mockery of these, uh, this triumvirate of wicked men, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, that his response to them is they had no part in this. It was to draw a bright red line in the sand between Judah and the covenant people and the people of God and what was rightfully theirs by covenant and by grace, that these men, these opponents, had nothing to do with Christ and with his church. And so we've seen the opponents before. So what I'd prefer to do at this point is focus on the opposition. And the very first thing we see by way of opposition is, uh, is formulated here in verse 1 where we read two things about Sinbalat. We are told when he saw that they were, or heard they were rebuilding the wall, he became furious and very angry and he mocked the Jews. Now there are two different verbs here in our text and both of them are synonyms. And both of them express the most sort of intense and visceral anger you can imagine. It wasn't just that he was displeased, as if it was a a mild case of indigestion about it. The very verbs that are used here describe his demeanor and his attitude is that he was filled with a raging, burning anger. But here's the thing. That anger took the form of mockery. We're told here he mocked the Jews, and you can see the substance of that mockery in a series of rhetorical questions as he goes on to say in verse 2. He spoke in the presence of the brothers and the wealthy men of Samaria, and he said, what are these Jews doing? Now we need to be mindful of the fact that though our text says he spoke these words among the nobility of Samaria, the fact that Nehemiah is repeating precisely what he says tells us That there was a leak in the room, right? There was uh, some little fly on the wall there in Samaria in the assembly of the nobility. And they brought all of these rhetorical mockery questions back to the people of Judah. And so the first question is, what are these feeble Jews doing? And what it does here is it puts the finger on the great problem. They're just a bunch of weak, pitiful people. Again, this isn't just the report of Sinbalat. This is the testimony of the people of God about themselves. They lamented the fact that they were small in number. They were weak. They were pitiful. The next question builds on the former. Are they able to restore it for themselves? In other words, can a people who are so obviously weak and pitiful and feeble can they handle a project such as this? And then it goes into mockery about how they may conceive of how they can do it. And so the next question is, can they offer sacrifices? In other words, the, the mockery of the question is basically to say, are they going to pray the walls up? After all, how can people who are so weak and feeble and, and pitiful uh, do such a project as this? Do they think they can just uh, build the walls on a wing of prayer? 
The next is similar. Can they finish in a day? Can they finish in the day? It mocks the apparent naivete of these people. So weak, so pitiful, so despicable, so few in number. Can they build a wall by whistling as they work? Like the seven dwarves? Is it as easy as that? If they just put their college best into it, can, can they build it in a day? If we really get excited about this, can, can we just build these walls in a day? As if they've never even given a thought to the enormity of the project, the impossibility of it all. Can they revive the stones from the dusty rubble? This is a mockery of the situation. It gives false information, but essentially it says they don't even have the construction tools. They don't even have the raw materials. They don't even have a Home Depot nearby where they can go buy everything. Can they use these stones? Can they use what's lying in ruin? Can dust turn into bricks? You see, this is the problem. And then Tobiah, uh, his uh, trusty uh, sidekick and friend here, uh, jumps on and he says, yeah, uh, even, if, um, even if a fox should jump on the wall, it just toppled it over. Again, it's a scorning ridicule of the people of God. A little breeze, a gentle breeze would topple the walls. And so all of it is designed for what? All of it is to mock. All of it is psychological operations. And it's really important to grasp that because even the mockery and the questions perceive something that is critical. And the thing that is critical is that though morale may be a mile high, in reality, it's an inch deep. Remember the morale expressed by the assembly in verse 18 after Nehemiah calls them to this vast project. Everyone in that room said to one another, let us arise and rebuild. You see, it's high morale. You see, what the mocking enemies have put their finger on is they themselves really don't believe it. They themselves are weak in heart. And though they may for a moment express a great gusto and desire to build the kingdom of God, just a little bit of opposition, history told these enemies and opponents would thwart it all. That's when Nehemiah enters into the picture. That's when the text really begins to get good because Nehemiah, having heard all this, it says here, hear, O God, how we are despised. It's very obvious that verse 4 is a response to the anger and the taunting and the mockery of the questions in the prior verses. Very clearly the words got through. The fly on the wall in Samaria arrived in Nehemiah's office in Jerusalem and he's saying, this is what they're saying about us. We are despised. We're held in contempt. He holds up the beleaguered condition of the people of God. Because, by the way, the word despise tells us it got through to the workers. They conceived of themselves as those who were nothing more than the objects of ridicule and mockery and contempt. There's nothing that will kill enthusiasm by reminding you of your lack of self-worth. Nothing worse than that, that gnawing self-doubt about yourself that I, I lack the ability and the resources and the know-how to do what I'm supposed to do. No one wants to be in that position. You ever remember your first day at the job? You didn't even know what a time clock was. You'd probably never punched a card in your whole life. You probably even know people did that when they went to work. And then you found out there's a manual that thick. There's rules and policies and regulations. And the next thing you know, you say, what in the world did I sign myself up for? You're filling out paperwork. You're listening to instructions. It all feels bewildering. That's the sense that these people are feeling now as their enemies are seeking to poke a hole in all of their feigned high morale. And what does Nehemiah do in response? Well, he teaches us how to be the church militant. He prays imprecations. 
Verse 4, return their reproach on their own heads and give them up for plunder in a land of captivity. Do not forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out from before you. He says, let their reproach, in other words, the taunting and the mocking and the ridicule and the anger, take all of that which they have sought to to heap upon our heads and pour it out right upon them like a, a pot of boiling hot water. Turn it all upon them. Matthew Poole, the great 17th century expositor, says, yes, it sounds harsh, but it was just. Because the enemies were implacable. Notice the elements of imprecation here. That is to call down curse, give them up for plunder. That is, may they be uprooted from the neighborhood and exiled to another land as slaves, just like Judah had been. And then you get into verse 5 where you really feel the force of the imprecations. Because here he's not just praying that God would pour out upon them which they intended for the people of God. He goes there. Listen to this. As he says, don't forgive their iniquity and let not their sin be blotted out before you. And I would tell you this morning, people of God, the Hebrew sounds just like the English. There's no way to... There's no way to soft pedal this. This isn't a bag of giant feathers dropped on them. He's praying that God would not forgive them. He's praying that God would remember their sins. The heart and soul of the Old Testament expression of forgiveness is, is found in Psalm 103, verse 12, right? It's that God removes our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, never to remember them anymore. And Nehemiah prays the exact opposite. Don't remove their sins from them and don't block them out and keep them right before the frontlet of your very eyes. That's harsh. May they never know The joy of Christ's blood. That's what's being said here. We can't undermine it or sugarcoat it or explain it away. This is harsh. And I want you to notice the reason why he says that in verse 5b. For, that signals explanation is coming. The reason why he's prayed these things before the Lord, it's right here. They have demoralized the builders, the demoralizing is the taunting and the mocking and the provocation. And what Nehemiah says is it worked. The affect, the way it landed on their ears and settled upon their hearts, was they had become demoralized. And they had stopped building the walls. The point of the prayer is to refresh the strength of the people of God to counter the hostility of Christ's enemies. You see, Nehemiah teaches us how to be the church militant. And it begins with this, praying prayers of imprecation against the enemies of Christ. I have to remind you this morning, people of God, that this kingdom opposition, this wall-building opposition, is satanic opposition. I remind you again that the purpose of the walls was the restoring of the visible tokens of the glory of God in Jerusalem. It was a holy purpose. It was a God-exalting, God-honoring, God-glorifying purpose. Those rebuilt walls would be a testimony to the whole of the earth that God in heaven reigns and the visible tokens of His reign are right there in those walls. To oppose that is to oppose Christ. To oppose that is to oppose the building of the kingdom of God. The satanic. And I know that Sanballat doesn't show up here with devil's horns and Tobiah doesn't have a pentagram stamped upon his forehead. But the people of God are to have discernment when we see such strident, obvious, open, willful opposition against God and against Christ and the gospel and his church, it's not San Balor Tobiah anymore. It's the kingdom of darkness. 
And the reason is because Satan hates Christ. He's a fallen angel who has been stomped and subdued underneath the foot of Christ by the cross. He carries a chain with him wherever he goes as a result in the effect of the cross that he may no longer deceive the nations, but he's still there. And he mounts a very powerful and effective opposition. Don't take that from my word. The word of God says so. The word of God says so. Apostle Paul tells us we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against rulers, powers, principalities, forces of darkness in high places. This is precisely why the church is called to be the church militant. Because the Word of God tells us these little fiery darts of the wicked one are very effectual due to his aim at destroying the morale, the discipline, the energy, and the hope of the church. These were demoralized builders. They were demoralized builders on Nehemiah's own inspired say-so. It reminds us this morning, people of God, that the resistance is the same for us. The Apostle Peter says in the New Testament that Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And do you know what the Apostle Peter does not say? Do you notice what the Apostle Peter does not say? He does not say, oh, but don't worry about it because you're in Jesus. He did not say that. The very next thing that he said after this description of the wiles of the wicked one, he says, resist him firm in faith. That's the church militant. We're not indifferent. We don't seek to explain it away as if it's a byproduct of being caught up in a natural world full of causes and effects. It's a spiritual order that stands against Christ and it calls the church to respond firm in faith. And the way we do that is implication. I have to say I hurled almost reading one commentator after another last week clutching pearls as they read this prayer of Nehemiah. How could our sensitive ears bear this? How can we as believers who have heard Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who mistreat you, ever dare say something like Nehemiah said? Never mind the fact that it completely distorts and misunderstands what Jesus commands there when he says, love your enemies, and you pray for those who personally attack you, not anything about about the church and how it seeks to organize against this. But when I hear people say things like that, it just makes me wonder, has this person ever wrestled with their sin? Has this person ever faced the intensity of the opposition against Christ? You have a burning zeal for the glory of God if it's okay for you to see the Sandalots and Tobias and Geshems of our day seeking to destroy the church of Jesus Christ and tear down its walls and we do nothing about it. The psalmist doesn't say that. He's not a virtue signaler. He said, do I not hate those who hate you? Oh Lord, do not I love, do not I loathe those who rise up against you? Indeed, I hate them with an utmost hatred. And I already know what the response is. That's so Old Testament. Well, if I remember right, Jesus Christ is the great king. And he was then too. He just hadn't unveiled it through his incarnation. You see, the issue is not about you or me personally. Or the Old Testament, for that matter. The issue is about Christ and His glory and His kingdom. And when the kingdom of darkness seeks to snuff and stomp out Christ and His church and the gospel and the growth of the kingdom in this age, there's no other way to define it and understand it than the direct opposition of the kingdom of darkness 
to understand it as satanic, and to pray exactly how Nehemiah prayed. This is to align our will with God's will. Remember, Jesus himself taught the church to pray. The disciples said, uh, Master, can you teach us how to pray? Because John used to teach his disciples, and, and Jesus said, Sure. And the very first word out of Jesus' mouth as he taught the church how to pray was to say, Thy kingdom come. What are you praying for when you ask for the kingdom of Jesus Christ to come? The coming of the kingdom of Jesus Christ is at the same time the destruction and replacement of the kingdom of darkness. They cannot coexist together. To pray, thy will be done, is to replace the evil and the malevolence and the sinful corrupt actions that flow from an unbelieving heart with what? Righteousness, which is born of grace. You see, it's to destroy. It's to tear down. It's to displace and to rebuild. Praying in precatory prayers, the church exercises the call to militants because Jesus Christ didn't authorize us to make peace with darkness. He did not authorize us to tolerate evil. Instead, he called us to rise up and to seek to be the militant church in this age with a martial edge praying against wickedness. I don't know why we have such a hard time believing that. If the world today can rise up with all of its phony morality and virtue signaling, with all of the wrath of heaven against every single minor infraction against its code of ethics, how can the church do something different? I ask it again. I asked it several sermons ago, but I wonder if the church has lost this conception. Have we lost a a keen and clear sense and perception of the antithesis between uh, good and evil. And one way we can measure that is how the world thinks of our prayers. Is anybody in the world saying today, as the Queen of Scotland did of old, that she feared the prayers of John Knox more than she did all of the battleships of Europe? I would say I doubt it. One of the reasons why is because the church today has lost a sense of this antithesis and the duty and sense of calling of loyalty to Christ. And that duty and sense of calling of loyalty to Christ and a burden for the glory of God in all of life, in all of its relationships, is a call to be militant. Not to take up arms. I didn't say take up a single arm. I didn't ask anybody to pick up a sword so much as a paper clip. To be the church militant is to pray according to the will of Christ that his enemies would be destroyed, that the kingdom of Christ would go forward. Nehemiah teaches us how to respond to opposition, praying with imprecation. I want you to notice, just for your encouragement this morning, the result of that praying in verse 6 the people of God were refreshed. We built the wall. And the whole wall was joined together for the people had a mind. You see, Nehemiah testified that they had become debilitated and demoralized. And after the prayer, they had become refreshed and they had a mind to work. Well, we turn now, secondly, to martial preparation. And again, we have to contrast what Nehemiah did with... um, what uh, Sinbala and his, um, his gang did. You see here the unified opposition through military force in verse 7 when Sinbala, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repair of the walls of Jerusalem went on and that the breaches began to be closed. They were angry and all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem to cause a disturbance. In it, and you see here geographical unity. The the way that the text lays this out is that there is an indicator of of each of the four directions on the compass. There's Sembalat to the north. There's the Ammonites to the south. 
there's the Ammonites to the east, and there's the reference to the Ashdodites, which would be the west, which gives a visual and symbolic picture of total enclosure. Judah and Jerusalem is entirely surrounded and encircled by enemy opposition, and they are unified in hostility. Notice they were angry, which means they were burning with anger, and they united in conspiracy, verse 8. All of them conspired together to fight and to cause a disturbance. So here we have coordinated and planned rebellion, unified by common hostility, with a single objective aim, which was to fight and to destroy. But that wasn't even the worst part of it. The worst part of it is the intimidation. I want you to notice the campaign of whispers in your text. Verse 11, Our enemies said they will not know or see until we come among them and kill them and put a stop to their work. Notice here, we're getting direct testimony from the very enemies about their plan and their opposition. We're going to be like ninjas. We're going to come up by stealth. We're going to crawl right up beside them. And when they're least expecting it, as they're putting another brick in the wall, they're going to get shanked in the back. Verse 12, it got through. Notice, when the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times, they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. Now the text turns from the, uh, the testimony about what the enemies were saying to the testimony about what the people of God were saying about the enemies. We're told that it's the people who lived near to Jerusalem, which means they were the country folk who didn't live in Jerusalem. And the campaign of whispers uh, permeated the hillsides. And so the next thing you know, the country folks are coming into town and saying what the enemy opposition is all about. Ten times, Nehemiah says, with a note of exasperation. After all, he just had to pray to, to instill them with the fear of God to to get back to work. And now all of it's been gone. All of the morale has been eroded again. And the country folk are coming into town, spreading throughout the whole city. Predictions of woe. They will come up against us and from every place. Back to square one. And we can see that in the little song in verse 10. I don't think it was, it doesn't feel like a catchy song, but it was a song. That's the sense of it. Um, and, and here it is. Maybe if we just shorten the sentences, I'll just read it for you. Thus it was said in Judah, the strength of the burden bears is failing, yet there is much rubbish. We ourselves aren't able to rebuild the wall. This was the greatest hit playing on Casey Kasem. If you don't know what that is, you're probably not too old. <laughs> Strength is failing. The rubbish is too tall. We can't rebuild. This is the demeanor and the attitude of the people of God. They are surrendered and defeated. No strength, no energy, no way. Now notice opposition through martial preparation. One of the things that we love about Nehemiah is that he's a man of hard-headed sense. He's pious, right? He, he prays. When I read this man's prayer, I, I say, that's a brother. I'm going to learn from him about how to pray. I learn about the things that he prays for. I learn about his persistence in prayer, his attitude to prayer, his short prayers, his praying when he's on the way to work, praying in the middle of trouble. But as much as he's a godly, pious man that way, he's not like the guy who used to say is so uh, heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. This man knows how to connect faith to life and put theology into action. And so he's done praying now. Now he's a man of action and leading them with skillfulness and with insight. And so he says in verse 9, I prayed to God and then what did I do? I set up a guard. <laughs> in view of the uh, all points of the compass opposition against Jerusalem, he did what any sensible person would do at this point. He said, I prayed, yeah, but I didn't stay on my knees. I got up and I set up a guard. And then in verse 13, he established a quick reaction force. I stationed them in the lower parts of the space behind the wall in the exposed places. And I stationed 
uh, the people in families with their swords and their spears and their bows. In other words, the weakest and most vulnerable parts of the city, he put armed uh, units and squads of fighting soldiers there, and he did something very insightful. He organized the military squads by family because why? You'll fight for, for you'll you'll fight more for your dad and your brother than you will your neighbor. Believe me. Well, you know that you'll fight more for your dad and your brother than you will your neighbor, even though you might like your neighbor. But he put he put swords and shields and spears in the hands of of these family members, and he stationed them as as armed units to be a quick reaction force against any incursions. Verse 16, he armed the reinforcements. From that day on, half of my servants carried on the work, while half of them held the spears, the shields, the bows, the breastplates, and the captains were behind the whole house. I'm of a mind to think when he says my men, he's referring to um, that cadre of soldiers which was assigned to him to come down uh, to Jerusalem to be his protective force. And these men would have had the most up-to-date and most complete set of armor and that's why we read about it all here. Spears, shields, bones, and breastplates. These men were fighting them. And then uh, strategic armament. Look at verses 17 and 18. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore a sword girded at his side as he built while the trumpeter stood near me. Well, uh, Nehemiah did something really important. He turned the construction site into an open carry zone. There's no concealed carry here. We're all packing. We're all armed to the teeth. And the interesting thing is the people who would carry the burdens into town because they could use one hand to carry and have a sword in the other, well, that's what they did. Just in case, remember, the ninjas were going to jump out of nowhere all of a sudden and hit him with a throwing star. Well, I got my sword in hand then. And then the people were actually doing the building because they needed both hands to do the work. Well, they had the 357 strapped on their side. But everybody here is armed. They're armed to the teeth. Everyone is packing. It's open carry, and they're ready to fight. That's not the heart of the story. <laughs> the call to arms is really the heart. And it's remember. Remember God. Look at verse 14. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid. Remember the Lord, who's great and awesome, and fight. They say that every good speech is drawn out by a situation. Every good speech is called forth because of the situation. The Gettysburg Address, if you will, was called forth in the midst of, of the Civil War. Every good speech is, is drawn forth from a situation. The situation here of this speech is wrapped up in that initial clause in verse 14. When I saw their fear. He had made all of the strategic armaments and the placements. He had developed the strategies and the tactics. He would prayed. But the one thing that he couldn't get over was the fact that the people of God, in spite of all of that, they walked around with droopy shoulders. And they had butterflies in their stomach. They were all afraid. And the thing that he does here as a master of human psychology was to remind them with what's more powerful than the sword that is the pen with words what their calling was and how to fulfill it to these people who were lacking courage and were wobbling at the knees he said don't be afraid remember the Lord it's not just that he called them to remember the Lord he put the spotlight. He shone the brightest light possible on the being and character of God. Great and awesome. Every single time doubt rose up in their mind. Every single time fear gripped their heart. Every time their hands began to tremble in fear. 
He said, I need you to stop in your tracks in that moment and remember the Lord. He's great. And He's awesome. What a profoundly important admonition that is to us people of God. It is so easy for us to be overcome with our fear and our our doubts and our despondency. To dwell on our own weakness, our own sense of not belonging, our own awareness of our own incompetence and inability, our awareness of of the depths of the problem we face, of the uncertainty and the questions and the doubts which surround it all. And the next thing you know, the the stack of fears piles up to the ceiling. And not one time have we stopped to think about what was important. It's not the number of my enemies or the strength of my opposition. It's not the weakness of my flesh. It's not the inability of people around me. The greatest and most important thing I can think on in my sorrows and struggles in life is not myself, but my Maker, my Lord, my Savior. How great and how awesome. You see, the genuineness of our hope and our confidence doesn't come from thinking upon our own strategies and preparations. It comes from this, remembering the Lord. Because with God... Everything is possible. Healing is possible. Weakness is made strong. Victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat. Hope overcomes despair. Courage replaces fear. This is what we need to be armed with. Remember the Lord. Great and awesome. There's no way to be the church militant without faith. And there's no way to be the church militant without remembering the Lord. There's no way to be the church militant without taking your theology and everything you say you believe and praying it into practice. There's just no way. Notice here the admonition links theology to life because they're to remember the Lord and fight. Notice the speech is completed. It feels like it gets clipped off and and forgotten, but he returns here in in verse 20. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally there. You see, the idea is that Nehemiah carried a radio man around with him, but instead of having a radio, it was a giant trumpet, and he stood at a great place. And if enemy, enemy incursion was seen, the trumpet would blow. And the theory and the practice and the call was to rally together. But notice what he says upon the call to action. Our God will fight for us. You see, it's both. It's both. Piety says, well, I prayed about it. That's false piety, by the way. That's not real piety. Because real piety says, I prayed about it, and then I did. I went to work. I called upon the Lord and I acted. That's it. We pray, we think, and we act. It's the epitome of theology in action. And everything that Nehemiah says here is summarized by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. It's the call to be the church militant. To assess the situation for what it is. It's not Sambala. It's not Tobiah. It's not Geshem. The enemies we face are spiritual. They are real. They're destructive. And they're dangerous. Whether that's the sins of your own heart and the temptations you constantly face and feel like they're constantly dragging you down and mastering you or all of the opposition which is around us which is so numerous it's hard to even count and keep track of either way the assessment is to be made the assessment is what the apostle Paul says it's very similar to Nehemiah's we wrestle not with flesh and blood 
but with principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. So in view of that, the Apostle Paul said, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God. Isn't that what Nehemiah and his camp did? It was an open carry zone. That should be us. Putting on the armor of the Lord being strong in his might by equipping ourselves and arming ourselves with the spiritual weaponry that Christ gives us. Because when we do that in Christ and in the Lord, no opposition can stand. We exercise our call to be the church militant by being strong in the Lord Jesus Christ and remembering that in the midst of all of our our problems with the, the full weight and opposition of the world around us. We're not alone. We're not to be afraid. We're in Christ. We remember the Lord. We fight. Remember the Lord and fight. The third point is relentless action. We've done the bulk of the heavy lifting. I just would point you to how it all played out. Verse 21. So... See, that's, that's his way of saying, okay, okay. The enemy showed its fangs. It snapped and snarled at us. We prayed. We set a guard. We remembered the Lord. And we went to work. We carried on the work with half of them holding spears from dawn until the stars appeared. I think that's such a lovely image. Half of them were holding the spears and the rest were slinging the trail. Verse 22. The resolve, let each man with his servant spend the night within Jerusalem so they may be guard for us by night and a labor by day. And then we have this really interesting note that I probably could have gotten along without, but he gives it to us in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So here we go. <laughs> Neither I nor my brother servants or the men of the guard who followed me removed our clothes. And each uh, took his weapon even to the water. So they didn't bathe or change clothes for the rest of the project. Pretty uh, salty, smelly group. The point of it is to underscore the resolve. They didn't so much as lift a fork at chow without a weapon in their hands. You see? It was great resolve. That's what flowed from all this. Relentless action and great resolve. They received the call to be the church militant. Can I just end with a, a couple of things to tell you here? And I, I want to begin uh, with the gospel. We've talked a lot about Nehemiah in the past and tried to weave it into the current situation. But let me just begin with the gospel. Jesus Christ has won the victory over sin and the devil and darkness at the cross. We must never doubt that. Jesus Christ won the victory. Nehemiah prayed down curses upon the enemies of Christ, but the reality is Jesus Christ took the curse of God's wrath which was upon us, and He bore it up on the cross Himself. And because that He received that, all of our sins are blotted out. Remember the apostle said He took all of the charges and the accusations and he nailed them to the tree. He's kept the law for us. He's imputed his righteousness to our account. He's taken out the old stone-cold, unregenerate heart. He's, he's replaced it with a new fleshly one upon which are written the tables of the law. He's reached down into the bowels of hell in the kingdom of darkness and reclaimed us. He's placed us in the kingdom of God and he's elevated us to sit as princes in heavenly places in Christ and enjoy every single spiritual blessing with him. And because all of that has been done for us, it means now, as Bollinger said, we continually fight under the banner of Jesus Christ. Because of everything that you have received, because all that Christ has done, you are now under the banner of Christ and you are called a soldier and your fight 
is the same every single day of your life because your warfare is against the devil, the world, and the flesh. Every single day of your life, you are called to militants. The Apostle Paul said, you put to death your sin or sin will be killing you. Militants. Every day of your life. When the church forgets that, when the believer forgets that, they lose their spiritual strength and focus. Every day of your life is about killing your sin and withstanding the appetites that are unholy and the sinful nature which seeks to drag you down. But you're also called to wage war beyond yourself. It wouldn't be enough if each one just tended to our own and kept our mouth shut. It's not enough. It's not enough if the, the believer does it. It's not enough if the church just does that. Just just takes care of itself. No, the church here, Burkhoff says, may not spend her time only in daily devotions. But he says they must be engaged with all of her might in the battles of the Lord, fighting in a war that is offensive and defensive. I thought through all the texts in Scripture that could summarize for us. Uh, nothing came more clearly to mind than 2 Corinthians 10.5, where the Apostle says, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is the call to militants. Destroying speculation, destroying lofty things raised up against the knowledge of God, and taking every thought captive to Christ. Fathers and mothers, this is what you're called to do. You are called to train your children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. That is destroying speculations and lofty things raised against the knowledge of Christ. That is taking every thought captive to Jesus Christ to train your children up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord so they will fight against their sinful nature and so that they will orient their ways to Jesus Christ. It's not natural. It's something you must do. I have told you many times, you can and you will fail as parents your whole life. Praise be to God that all of our parental sins are covered in the precious blood of the Savior. But here's what you can't fail to do. You can't fail to pray for your children. You can't fail to catechize your children. You can't fail to love your children. You have to do all three of those things. This is what it is to be the church militant. You're raising them up in your home. You're teaching them to orient their ways to Christ. Husbands and wives, you're to cultivate a godly relationship. You're to cultivate a godly relationship. I'm going to borrow here from the wedding liturgy which says and prays for this, that our marriages may be unto good in this life and for that which is to come. We do that by cultivating godly marriages where the husband and wife love each other according to Christ. And they fight for that marriage and they keep it pure. They cast out the bickering and the stupid arguing. And they learn to care for one another and make that home a place of safety and peace and under Christ's rule. Individuals, every single believer, you're called to be the church militant. As the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind in order that you may prove what is the good and perfect will of God. This is what it means to destroy the speculations and every lofty thing and thought and idea which exalts itself against the knowledge of Christ. This is what it means to be the church militant and to bring every thought captive under Jesus Christ, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind as you cleanse your mind and your thoughts and your attitudes with the Word of God. To be the church militant means then... We arm ourselves with the truth of God's word and we pray it into the very fiber of our soul by the grace of God so that when we go out into the world, we bear the love of God in Christ.
offensive. We take the love of God in Christ right outside the door to a world full of people who are hurt and broken because of their sin. That we give them the light and the hope and the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we have been before the throne of grace and we are being mastered by his word and his gospel. And we take that and we bear it forth before a world in all of its rotten fallness and sin. We show them something it doesn't have any access to or knowledge of, which is the love of God in Christ. And as we do that, our Savior said, they'll notice and they'll glorify our Father who is in heaven. As we do that, people of God, by the grace of God and by the power of the Spirit, we'll be the church militant. And we will, by so doing, restore glory to God, to Christ, and to his church.